This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to the first episode of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast in 2024. I'm Laura Souter and joining me this week is Dan Coatesworth. Hi there, Laura. Happy New Year to you. And to you too. Now, two months ago, way back in 2023, we asked if any listeners have managed to retire early and gain financial independence in line with the so-called FIRE movement. And plenty of you have hit that goal, judging by the responses that we received. Now, Charlene Young is going to come on the show to share some of these stories. And I'm also going to talk to podcast listener Phil about how he managed to give up work early and live the life he always dreamed of. And later in the show, we asked Chris Elliott from Evenload Global Equity if artificial intelligence is a game changer for business or whether it was overhyped last year. Now, you might have spotted that the FTSE 100 turned 40 this week. So Laura and I are going to have a quick chat about whether we should celebrate or worry that the blue chip index is now having a bit of a midlife crisis. And I'll be discussing some good news for anyone looking to move or remortgage. But first up, let's take a quick look at what's been happening in the markets since the start of the year, which admittedly, as we record, is not that many days. No, no it's only a few days, but... It, you know, it's it's not been not been that good. Um, we've had notable sell off in in sort of tech stocks in the US. Uh, the UK has been not as bad as the US, and that's been helped by oil prices have been going up because of the disturbance in the Red Sea um, affecting shipping lanes. And of course, this is this is creating worries that um, oil supplies could be disrupted, uh, and so that's benefited some of the big names in the UK market like BP and Shell. But really, what what's what's actually been sort of troubling the market is sort of the Fed being quick to sort of pour cold water over sort of talk that you know we're going to see these big rate cuts. Because if, if you sort of go back a couple of months in November and December, we had sort of quite a big rally on the on the markets. This is everyone thinking, okay, great. Um, you know, inflation is coming down. The Fed's going to start um, cutting rates, and this is obviously very good for equities. But we've just had the minutes from the latest Fed interest rate meeting. Of course, they're full of mixed messages, and, and that sort of led people to on the markets to sort of be a little bit confused about what actually is going on. Uh, you know, there's a sort of those who sort of think that we're going to have this pivot to lower rates could actually look at these these meeting minutes and say that you know, okay, look, inflation. Uh, is under control according to the sort of central bank, um, and the Fed sort of saying that yeah, it's referencing risks to an overly restrictive approach that, you know, that, that the risks of those that, that approach might take to um, you know pose to the health of the economy. But equally, if if you're sort of thinking actually I, I wasn't expecting near term rate cuts, um, there's stuff in in the sort of Fed meeting minutes which you know perhaps. Uh, you know, confirm your thoughts where they're saying that they're going to maintain a restrictive stance for some time. So um, it's, it was really quite, you know, not the sort of thing you want at the start of the new year. You want to sort of you know, start off with a bang and you know, give you optimism for, for the sort of the, the months ahead. We didn't quite get that. But of course, like you say, Laura, we're only a few days into the year. And of course, these things can change very rapidly. And even though it wasn't that long ago, we've already had Christmas trading updates from some of the high street retailers, one of those being Next, which is often seen as a kind of a bellwether for the high street, isn't it? And the other being JD Sports. So how did they both get on? What are they telling us about how people were spending around Christmas? It's really interesting because they 
both sort of giving opposite um, you know, opposing messages. Next did much better than expected. JD Sports came out with a profit warning saying uh, things aren't going quite to plan. So I, I think that the thing with JD Sports is, is its margins have been hit by lots of promotional activity. And if you just look at some of the retailers in the last few months, people like H&M and um, Intertext, which owns Zara and, and ASOS, they're all they're either talking about um, they're having to cut prices to, to essentially just to keep the tills ticking over to sell goods. Um, all they're talking about is slowdown in the pace of their sales growth. So um, JD is, you know, tick both those boxes, margins hit, revenue growth weak and expected. And so I, I, and I just saw having a think about it and thought, well, you know, what, what does JD Sports sell? Mostly it's trainers. So these are kind of nice to have, but I wouldn't say they're the sort of they're, they're essential things. So if you are watching your spending and thinking, well, you know, I've got to make some you know, tough decisions here. I have to prioritize where I'm going to be spending my money. So I think that you know, trainers would perhaps be lower down that list. But Next sells kind of essential things. Yeah, you know, to, to me, I think Next clothes are so boring. Um, I think you know, you, I, I think you you go into their shop, and I think there's did nothing appealing about any of these products. But they're they're functional, aren't they? They're functional, and I think that's the key thing. So in this sort of economic environment. I think that's what people want. You know, if you if your coat is tatty and it's horrible rain at the moment, you think, okay, I need a new coat. Your jumper's too small, something. You have to buy new ones. I think with JD, you don't have to buy the new pair of trainers. Um, I don't know if you you agree or not with me there, Laura. I agree with you that next clothes are very, very boring, but I worry that we're going to alienate half of our uh, listeners here so early on in the year as well. But they are quite good for kids' clothes. That's where I'll give them a caveat and for good sale items. But yeah, I kind of agree with you. It's interesting, though, that next is kind of seen as this a bit of a kind of barometer for how the high street's done and their results being more positive might highlight that other retailers have had a bit of a better Christmas than maybe some were expecting. And we had some figures out yesterday about supermarkets, um, food price inflation dropping again, although still around 7%. So still seeing big rises in prices there, but just less than they were. Um, But also some figures around kind of how supermarkets did during that Christmas spending. And um, they held up pretty well so far as the initial kind of research and data, the budget retailers doing really well, but also people spending a bit more on quality and going back to some of those middle market or, or high end um, supermarkets for their Christmas spending. So all in all, a rosier picture than I think some might have expected going into Christmas last year. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the idea of quality, I, I think people look at next and particularly like Marks and Spencers as well. If you're going to buy something, you want you, you want good value for money, you want something that lasts. And I think that people look at next for their boring products. Um, <laughs> they know that they're not going to fall apart because if you go to something like Primark, it's dirt cheap. But, you know, it, it, you know as a parent, only enough to know you, you wash it once and it's either shrunk to um, to nothing or it's just it's just full of holes <laughs> and stuff. So um, I think there is that element of people want to get the most for their money. Now, obviously, we, we, we are seeing sort of signs of a decrease in the rate of inflation. There is still talk of expectations for interest rates could be cut at some point this year. And of course, now, there's also some positive movements for those seeking a home loan, isn't there, Laura? Yeah, so the new year started with a bang if you're in the mortgage world because the UK's biggest lender, Halifax, decided to cut 
it's interest rates on mortgage products. And that means that brokers are now expecting lots of other mortgage lenders will follow suit. Now, this comes off the back of the end of last year, where we have these expectations now that the Bank of England is going to cut interest rates far sooner than the bank itself is saying, or than we previously thought. That obviously, in turn, affects what's called swap rates, um, which is partly what mortgages are priced on. And so it means that lots of lenders have now come out and cut mortgage rates by quite a meaty amount as well. When we've talked about mortgage cuts before, it's been some of them have been very small amounts. And while that's, you know, in the right direction, it's nothing to get too excited about. But these feel like decent cuts and brokers are expecting more as well. So I mean, great news. It's good news for anyone who's coming up to remortgage or anyone who wants to move house that those mortgage rates are getting lower. However, you know, with the huge caveat here that anyone coming to remortgage is still going to be facing much higher rates um, than they're paying currently. So we're not talking about drops back down to the previous levels that we saw in the mortgage market, far from it. But we're just seeing a bit of a climb down from those real highs that we saw last year, with the hope that that is kind of the continuing direction for mortgage rates as we get closer to rate cuts. And then obviously, once we get into rate cuts, then mortgage rates should drop more. So a glimmer of good news for the new year, I would say. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 other, the other thing that I, I wanted to sort of flag uh, before we sort of bring on some of our guests is, is the, the FTSE 100 turning 40. Um, you know, it, it, this is sort of obviously taken a lot of the headlines, um, people looking back at the UK market. But actually, if you look at those performance figures, I, I, I sort of struggle to, to sort of uh, get too excited about it. So... Um, some of our colleagues in AJ Bell have been sort of crunching the numbers and they've worked out that since the FTSE launched in 1983, it's had a 5.2% annualized return. Now, that sounds okay, um, but if you compare yeah. it to the MSCI World Index, which is kind of like a benchmark for, for, for stocks around the world, that's actually returned 7.7%. 9.1% you would have got from the S&P 500. So clearly, if you parked your money uh, in the US rather than the UK, you would have been a lot wealthier. Um, but, you know, as, as always, you have to think, OK, what, is there more to it than that? Now, the FTSE 100 is kind of known for being much more generous with dividends than a lot of other sort of um, markets, particularly you know, compared to the US. You, you probably get maybe 2% yield on, on some stocks. FTSE 100, you could potentially get almost double that. So if we if we add in some of those uh, those dividend data and get the total return, um, you're looking at an 8.6% annualized return. So that sounds much better. Um, and mm -hmm. I think if you had if you had 8.6% in your say in your pension every year from your investments, I think most people would be happy with that, wouldn't they? I'd be very I happy think, with that. Yeah, I think of course that there's always you know think okay well. Is that still in the shadow of the US market? And even though the S&P 500 generally yields a lot less than you'd get in the FTSE 100, you would have still made more money. So you would have got 11.4% here, um, annualized returns. And I must say that that's dating back to 1986 rather than 1983, because there isn't data right to the start to include all these dividends. So, um, but really, if you think about it, Kate, you got, at the moment, UK stocks are out of fashion um, mm -hmm. you know, this is all sort of stemming back to um, the, the Brexit vote in 2016. 
Um, and, and I think now people are, you know, just... I don't think we need to go into the argument why the UK market is um, out of favor. But I think the key point here is it's it's really cheap, whereas the US market is generally considered to be quite expensive. Now, history mm-hmm. suggests if you if you make an investment and you get in at a good price over time, potentially that's that's a much better starting place than going straight in at the top. So um, I think you know, the FTSE 100 is it does have a it does have a problem because no one really is actively sort of chasing these kind of stocks in at the moment. They prefer to look elsewhere for opportunities. Um, but I, I think you, you shouldn't sort of just give it a complete kicking. Um, I think if you look at it, it's home to some really robust companies. Only three of the 100 original members um, have gone bust. So names like MFI there. Um, and, and you've got loads of them, loads of them like uh, you know, Roundtree Macintosh. I don't know if you remember that one. Um that's now part of yeah. That's now part of Nestle, and I think you've got lots of other ones that, that were originally in the FTSE 100. They still exist in some form. Names like Great Universal Stores, Distillers. You know, they live on respectively in, in Experian and Diageo. Um, and I and I just think that you you've, you know, no one knows what the FTSE 100 is going to look like in in 40 years time. But I think that it, it is a. You know, a reminder that there are a lot of resilient companies over the years that have been on this market. And whilst they may not be the most glamorous, the most exciting, sometimes, you know, I was, I was you know, going back to the theme of boring, sometimes, you know, boring can be beautiful from an investment perspective. You know, it's stodgy businesses that just get on with the job. Um, so they may be less glamorous than the growth tech names you find in the US, but um, I don't think it's worth turning your back completely on the, on the UK as a market. Boring is good when it comes to investing and hopefully this podcast will still be running in the next 40 years so that we can really revisit that 40 year anniversary again and see what happened. (laughs) But let's bring on our first guest today. So Chris Elliott is one of the fund managers on the Evenload Global Equity Fund, which launched in 2020 and has been in the top 25% of performers in its sector over the past one and three years. So, Chris, I think most people would expect growth funds to have some exposure to artificial intelligence stocks, given this is a real hot theme at the moment. What's your view on AI? Do you think this is a game changer for business or perhaps just a bit overhyped? So we certainly think it will have wide ranging applications. Um, It very much depends on the time horizon that you're assessing. So over the long term, yes, absolutely. We do think it's a game changer. Uh, We can see lots of really interesting new products being developed by the companies that we invest in. Uh, particularly those who currently have very large proprietary data resources. So companies like Relex, Baltusclua, Verisk or Experian that have built up very large data sets over time and can really use AI to get the most out of those and add value to their clients. In the short term, it, I think it's less clear. Uh, so certainly we've seen more generative AI products coming to market, particularly Microsoft's Copilot. Uh, there is a very steep learning curve, in our opinion, for people adopting these and certainly for getting significant cost savings. Um, and it's going to take time for people to get trained up. Um, possibly the next generation will be better better in place to use some of these new tools and benefits. So you have Microsoft in your portfolio, don't you? Is that because of uh, the AI um, sort of opportunity or actually you invested in that stock for a different reason? Uh, So AI does form part of the investment case, but not the majority of it. Uh, We really see AI as an accelerator of the transition over to public cloud. Uh, And Microsoft are incredibly well positioned to take advantage of that as they 
already offer a number of services into most businesses. And NVIDIA, dare I ask? I mean, this is everyone's sort of go-to stock for, for AI stuff. Is that in your portfolio or or you know, not, not one for you, too expensive perhaps? Uh, yeah, so it's one that we have looked at in the past. I mean, at present for us, it's held out on valuation. Um, we value every single company in our universe using our own proprietary valuation model, but it, it very much depends on a business having excellent fundamentals today and doesn't rely on increases in volume to, to generate the improved economics. So for us, it's a no, um, but we can definitely see the, the qualitative case for a company like NVIDIA. So if, if I was to look at a growth fund and have a look at the stocks in its portfolio, to see names like Diageo, Nestle, not, not perhaps sort of your most obvious growth names, yet you invest in them. So what is it about these companies that you like? Sure, uh, we would really think of ourselves as a quality first fund rather than growth. Uh, we believe that businesses that have high returns in invested capital and more importantly can uh, make those returns of capital persist well into the future are able to compound cash flows at a higher rate and that really is what drives the growth and total shareholder returns so it's more an output for us now we look for three particular attributes which we think these high quality businesses share so structural market growth a durable competitive advantage and continuous reinvestment behind that advantage. Now, if you take Nestle and Diageo, we see them as having these, these attributes. So for instance, Diageo has uh, strong growth drivers from the premiumization of spirits in developed markets, but also increased consumption uh, as people in emerging markets switch from the more local spirits over to uh, international brands. And when they do that, what drives their brand selection tends to be uh, the level of marketing and the level of development of the overall brand that companies have invested in. So for a company like Diageo, uh, they have a really deep uh, sort of bench of different brands which they can move into different countries and has enabled them to gain share over time. And then finally, they have really supported those with heavy levels of marketing and investment capacity to build uh, the level of volume that they'll need to sell over the next sort of five, 10 years. We believe that over time should enable them to grow mid single digits, high single digits. Uh, and that for us is plenty, particularly given the stability of those businesses. Well, I know that Diageo has had a bit of bad news recently, isn't it? Is it, is it um, too much inventory in certain parts of the world? Because I did hear someone suggest to me that during lockdown, um, lots of people thought, okay, I can't get out. I'll, you know, I'll load up the sort of the liquor cabinet at home. Um, got lots of spirits there, but, Perhaps they didn't, you know, they're now still sitting on, you know, too much, too much sort of casual stuff you'd have around the house. Whereas, you know, something like a, a, a beer, you don't sort of buy that in bulk to have at home, do you? Just you have whatever you need for that evening. Is, is Diageo sort of, um, is it actually turning out to be one of these sort of COVID winners that's having a massive headache? After um, well, yeah, there's definitely some normalization. Um, and what we saw in South America was that as they were putting price increases through, uh, many of the distributors were stockpiling. Now, uh, it is management's job to sort of detect that and to uh, make adjustments to the amount that they're selling into the market. And they have now done that um, and they are working through the problem. So we think that's a temporary uh, issue, which which will work out. And indeed, we have seen it in the past in areas like uh, North America. Um, but, but it is something that we do keep an eye on. So I think a lot of growth funds seem to hold lots of the same stocks like Microsoft and MasterCard, TSMC. D do you try to be different to other sort of funds to stand out from the crowd? Or actually, are you happy holding some of these names if 
really these are the these are the the best quality companies you can find on the market. Yeah, we don't deliberately set out to be different, uh, but our philosophy and process tends to lead to significant differences. Um, so we don't look for asset intensive companies, which rules out a lot in some of the more traditional spaces. So no energy companies, miners, real estate or banks. Um, and we really focus in on companies that do have very strong pricing power. Now, if that is a company that is well owned, that doesn't preclude us from owning it. So we, as we say, do have positions in companies like Microsoft and MasterCard. So do you think 2024 is actually going to be a bit of a tough year for growth stocks? You know, we've got economic headwinds. You know, inflation's easing off, which means it might be harder for these companies to push up prices. I mean, this just perhaps would suggest, you know, a challenging environment for these these types of businesses you might find in your portfolio. Yeah, so I mean, we're not macro forecasters. We're very much bottom up investors. So we're really seeking a portfolio that can be insulated against a wide range of economic scenarios. Now, that being said, uh, obviously, we have seen inflation start to drop, and we would expect interest rates to start to come down both in the US and, and the Western world over the rest of the year. And that that could have a, a, some impact on some companies' abilities to push prices. Uh, we do believe that those businesses that have a strong competitive advantage, be that the network effect or high switching costs, are generally better positioned to push uh, prices through. So if you take a company like Avolta Sklur, which provides uh, data services into professionals, um, their product is so important to their customers and has such high switching costs that if they do want to push price a bit harder, they always have the ability to do so. Um, and that's really the type of business that we'll be looking for. So just finally, what, I mean, where are you actually seeing the best opportunities at the moment? Well, we still do still very much like the cloud service providers, so uh, Microsoft, Amazon, and Alphabet. Uh, we're still very early in the cloud transition. Uh, the estimate is that only 40% of eligible workloads have been migrated across to the cloud as of today. Um, and we do see uh, the developments in AI as a significant accelerator for that migration. Um, in terms of other areas, there's a lot of value at the moment in some of the FMCG companies, consumer goods, um, these are categories which have been beaten up a little bit over the last few years, particularly as you've seen cost inflation come through. Um, and if you can identify categories which have particularly high growth rates, so areas like cosmetics or coffee or pet food or spirits, where you can get a higher growth rate and you have very low private label share, we see those companies are looking particularly uh, attractive valuations at the moment. That was Chris Elliott from Evenload Global Equity Fund. Now, talking of Evenload, I'm sure you've told me a story, Laura, that when you used to be a journalist at Telegraph, you went and spent the day with Evenload to see the magic <laughs> behind the scenes. That's, that was true, wasn't it? Yeah, that is true. You've not, that would be a weird thing for you to have kind of imagined. Uh, <laughs> yes, I did. I did a day in the life of a fund manager. I think the headline on the piece was... They earn millions, but what are they doing with your money? Very nice grabbing headline. Yeah, and I went and um, looked at what they do all day in their beautiful Cotswolds office with their office dog. It was delightful. Very good. So I might have to go and dig out that article on, on dear old Google and see what, <laughs> see what you say. So two months ago, we talked about the FIRE movement on the podcast. And that stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. It was clearly a popular topic with listeners as we were inundated with people wanting to share their stories after hearing our discussion. 
Now, I think a lot of people would love not to work until they're well into their 60s. And so they probably spent a long time trying to adapt their lifestyle so they can afford to retire early. Now, we'll shortly hear an interview with one of our listeners who's done just that. But first, let me bring on Asia Bell's pensions and savings expert, Charlene Young. Charlene, Happy New Year to you. Thanks, Dan, and Happy New Year to you too. So Charlene, I know you've been going through the emails we've received from listeners. What sort of things have people been saying? Yeah, so the responses were really interesting and quite refreshing take on how people had adapted some of the FIRE principles to help them work towards their goals, rather than some of the extreme examples of delayed gratification or sort of hyper frugality. So um, just to go through some of, some of the stories that were shared. So one listener gave us their FIRE date of December 2021, when he was just into his 60s and his partner into their 50s. So for them, reaching financial independence looked like being mortgage-free, having a variety of income streams um, from some modest final salary pensions, um, a rental property and some interest, plus um, a year spending um, in cash, so that, that kind of large cash buffer. And what they shared is whilst they're really happy with their sort of comfortable lifestyle, um, having both been quite hard workers and active people um, in their younger lives, they're finding they sometimes have a little bit too much time on their hands, particularly in the, the cold, dark winter months. So the good saving and investing habits that sort of laid the foundation for them being able to reach financial independence or retire early means they're sort of finding new ways to help keep their minds and bodies happy, but not necessarily splashing the cash on sort of endless cruises was one of their examples. So on the flip side, another gentleman shared his extensive experience after deciding to quit what he calls the rat race in 2012. So his income streams were provided um, from rental properties and ices and sips. And although it's clear he's put a lot of time and effort into his investment research over the years, he did share some experiences of decisions that didn't quite go his way, um, particularly as he navigated some of the choppier investment waters um, since he started on his investment journey in the 90s. Um, and another listener gave a wise reminder to kind of expect the unexpected. His story was quite different, actually. He was sort of thrust reluctantly into employing a kind of fire saving philosophy due to sadly being made redundant at the start of um, the pandemic from a very well paid role. Um, and finding similar work for him hasn't just been forthcoming. So with, with children to help through university, he's sort of looking to bridge the gap now until his final salary pension starts. So, you know, his was a tale of you know, expect the unexpected. So for some of us, you know, over the last two years, those inflationary shocks um, have, have perhaps sort of delayed or adjusted people's plans. Um, one final example, and a great one was um, from listener Jim, who managed to hit his fire goal just as he was turning 40. Um, but for him and his family, rather than stopping work completely, that meant that's actually meant that he's just reduced his working hours significantly, um, as he still enjoys being able to work. Um, and what that has meant is that his wife has been able to stop work and pursue um, her more creative passions and hobbies. So he, Jim tells us that the main benefits of following the FIRE movement to him and his family have been having the freedom to do what you want with your life, being able to be completely honest with your employer and choosing not to take promotions that might take you away from the work that you like doing and create more stress. And then finally, and most importantly for him, having more time to raise his, his kids with his wife. Um, 
Jim tells us the downsides haven't been significant for him and that he he feels that fire can be achieved by most people with some spending discipline, but the recent inflation shocks, as I mentioned, um, have even meant for him that he will actually continue to work in some form for now. Um, he describes the situation as happily coasting, which I really, really loved. Um, so what was really lovely about the, the listener stories was, you know, sharing those those stories of financial independence, but also refreshing that there was a lot of honesty too. People weren't afraid to admit some investment choices hadn't gone their way or, you know, the impact as I mentioned of, of the recent high inflation, but they were all able to make adjustments to suit them and still feel content with those who'd actively made the decision to pursue fire. And I think for me, that's what financial independence is all about, you know, working because you want to, or because you want to pursue those hobbies rather than because you absolutely have to. Yeah, I was when I was looking through those emails myself. Um, it, one thing that sort of occurred to me was that no one was talking about having to sort of just live off pot noodles in order to stash away yeah. all their cash um, until later in life. They they were all sort of saying that you know they worked hard. Um, yes, quite a lot of people had quite decent paid jobs. Uh, it seems, but um, it was like it was having a goal and having a. They were everyone seemed to be very focused on it. Um, and actually, we we I did have a a really good chat with one of the listeners um, as a follow up, and we recorded this interview. And, and and so I think it's a really good time now to bring on uh, the chap called Phil, and he had. Uh, the idea actually in his early 20s to you know see how how early as possible he could retire um and yeah he's now living that dream so let, let's go back to the start and hear how the journey began with phil it's funny i don't quite know what triggered the idea but i certainly had the idea almost from the day i started work uh, and it's quite interesting because uh at the time i really loved work and I, until the day i retired I, I pretty much loved every day of work uh, but I just had that seed planted. I can't tell you why. It was just something probably to think, actually, you know what? Life's fairly short. So why would I want to work all the way until I'm 65 plus uh, and then start enjoying uh, my time doing all that travel, et cetera, when it's kind of starting to get too late to make the most of it? Um, so I thought, well, actually, why, why not? Why not just... Uh, make a plan and retire uh, uh, a lot earlier. So how did you manage to achieve it? Was it just a case of you you didn't go on sort of expensive holidays, you didn't make big purchases, you just watched every penny you could, or was it down to actually you had a, you had a decent job and it paid well? Um, uh, all, all of the above. <laughs> yeah. So I certainly had a decent job, so I can't deny that. So I, I've, I've always earned a... a a pretty good salary. Uh, but the key thing is I never spent anywhere near what I earned. So I always made a point of, I think first and foremost was pay off my mortgage as soon as I could. So I paid off my mortgage when I was about 37. And that was always my prime target. So, okay, once I pay off that, then the money I was paying into the mortgage goes into uh, investments. But also prior to that, uh, I was always sensible. For example, I never chased the best car I could afford. I just had a you know standard car, made it last. Uh, I never chased um, you know the best uh, technology, etc. Um, no need for that. So all of those little things accumulate to give you enough money to stash away 
Um, so in the early days, it was mostly to pay off that mortgage, um, you know, to get that, get that um, capital amount right down. Um, so I was avoiding interest. And bearing in mind, when I started with a mortgage, interest rates were about 13%. Wow. Okay. Uh, and when I finished, they got down to about 4%. Uh, but, you know, as, as those interest rates were coming down, I just kept my payments the same or more. So I never thought, actually, oh, that's good. Interest rates are half what they used to be. Let's go and spend that on, you know, a better car. No. Uh, I, I uh, maintained the lifestyle I had, which was always a good one. Uh, I never missed out on nice holidays or meals out, anything like that. So I always maintained a decent standard of living, but was just quite, um, I think, sensible in not doing anything too extravagant. So you mentioned after you'd paid off your mortgage, you put some money into investments. Do you think that you you were taking sort of high risks because you thought actually this is my chance to to really build up a pot of money or is, is that not really the style you just you were still semi normal or, or cautious perhaps in terms of what you were doing? Um, I, I, I was I, I wasn't massively risk averse but I certainly wasn't high risk so I always you know I was burned twice in the very early stages so first of all I had a very very generous uh, employee share purchase scheme for my first job um and i plowed a lot of money into that um and the company i did that for got bought out by tyco now i don't know if you remember the tyco scandal in the early 2000s with dennis kovzlowski and uh basically the the shares tumbled 70 percent overnight uh, oh because of fraud revelations so i basically lost just about everything there um I was about 30 at the time. So I uh, I learned a, a very quick lesson about putting being too greedy, putting all of your eggs into one basket. Uh, and I had one or two of the similar things where very early on, uh, I lost a lot of money. So from then on, uh, I learned about diversifying and not taking too much risk. You know, certainly one or two things I've taken risk on. Some have paid off, some have just crashed and burned um but never so much as you would uh, lose sleep over it it was okay that didn't work um you know move on but because you had diversified diversified the portfolio it wasn't a big deal if you lost because another thing would have gained to to balance that yeah what well, so in terms of now so you're retired your your wife is retired as well Correct. i mean did, yeah. did she did she have sort of plans from sort of a young age to to try and retire early, or you know, Absolutely, were you yeah. the sort of the influence on her to try and sort of save as much as possible? No, we we I think we both had the same idea and you know the same goals, uh, so we we both followed the same uh, the same path really to try and make sure this worked. And so now that now that you're retired, in terms of your sort of spending habits, um, do you find that you're still you, you've got one eye on not you know, try to make sure you don't spend too much. I guess if, you, if you've retired early, you, you really mm -hmm. need to make your money last a long time, don't you? Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's something that came as a bit of a surprise to me because um, I always thought, okay, one, once I hit the goal, I retire, that's it, you don't need to worry. But actually, because you don't have your salary coming in, uh, you then realise, actually, this money has got to last you until you die. Yeah. Um, 
And then um, to make matters worse, I retired just as the market started going crazy. So then I soon realized to say, actually, I can't start digging into my capital and, and you know, selling, selling shares to, to live off because the share prices were so low. So I'm going to massively lose out. So I've, um, what I essentially do now is, at, you know, for example, at the end of last year, I set a budget to say, okay, this is how much I want to spend in the year. And it was a, um, a decent amount to have a maintain my lifestyle. So my lifestyle's never got down, but I've said, okay, that's how much I can afford to spend. Uh, that's, this is how much I want to um, sell in terms of you know, divesting stocks and shares, et cetera. This is how much I anticipate growth. This is how much I anticipate in dividends making sure that balances out and I've got this projected through until age 105. So if I, if I were fortunate to live to 105, uh, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to run out of cash. Do, do you ever sort of think actually maybe, maybe I want to do a little bit of work? I mean, do you, do you ever, because I know it's quite often people retire and then yes, actually they, just get absolutely. Bit, they get a bit yeah. bored. So Yeah. 100%. Not so much boredom, uh, but I think um, I did find retiring very early. And actually twice I went back for a short term to do a little bit of freelancing, but that was more so, it wasn't a financial thing. It was more so to feed the loss I was feeling because mm. you definitely lose your professional identity. Uh, and that's a tough, uh, that's a tough thing. So, and also you've built this skill set over your whole career and you're no longer using it. And you feel the loss of that. So it's really, really difficult to adapt to. Um, so so twice I did two short stints just to kind of, um, um, I guess it helped me mourn that period of, <laughs> yeah. of retirement and get back into it. But actually, you know what? Now, uh, uh, three, four years in, I've got my head rounded. I've got a new lifestyle. I travel a lot. Um, um, you know, spends I spend my time doing the things I've always wanted to do, so I've got my head around that now. But I can't emphasize enough; it's it's a tough transition, absolutely. Well, thank you ever so much for coming on to our podcast to tell the story. It's really interesting. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the interviews on this week's podcast. Don't miss next week's show where Dan will be chatting to a fund manager at 91 about what's needed to make investors interested in China again. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.